Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode Elder Oaks is not a liar. Today's date is Friday, March 26, 2021. Just this morning, I was joined by my good friend Jonathan Streeter from Thinker of Thoughts for a joint podcast being released both here at Radio Free Mormon as well as over at Thinker of Thoughts, Jonathan Streeter's YouTube channel. If you want to see us in action and see some of the visuals, I recommend you go there to enjoy the show. If, however, you are content to simply listen to the audio version, here is the place for you. In this discussion, we go over a 1993 talk that Elder Oaks gave at the J. Reuben Clark School of Law on the campus of BYU. I believe it was the 20th anniversary of the existence of the J. Reuben Clark School of Law. There were many festivities and Elder Oaks was invited to come and share his thoughts. For whatever reason, Elder Oaks decided to use this opportunity to give a talk titled Gospel Teachings on Lying. That's correct. That's the title of the talk. It's not gospel teachings on telling the truth. It's gospel teachings on lying. And both Jonathan Streeter and I have spent a lot of time reviewing this talk in preparation for this podcast. But actually, it was only while we were speaking during the course of recording this podcast that both of us tripped to what it was that Elder Oaks was actually doing with his language and how it was that he was subverting honesty all the while proclaiming not only the importance of honesty as a principle, but proclaiming that he himself was its chief exemplar. I think you'll see what I mean as you listen to us talk about it. It's really fascinating that we both come to this realization, not in our preparation where we were looking for it, but it was so well hidden that we didn't actually tumble to it until we were talking about it on the air. I want to thank all the listeners to Radio Free Mormon, and particularly at this time, I want to single out for appreciation those listeners who have made donations to the podcast. Thank you so much. If you are among that number of listeners to the show who have not yet made a donation, please go right now to the RadioFreeMormon.org webpage. There's a donate button there. You can make a donation today. Please do make a donation today. In fact, you can pause this podcast right now and go make that donation right now. Come back. I'll be here when you return. I promise. If you can, please make a monthly donation of $10 a month, $20 a month, $50 a month, whatever you can afford. Your donations will help keep Radio Free Mormon broadcasting behind enemy lines. And now on to tonight's podcast. Elder Oaks is not a liar. Play the tape. remember it's not a lie if you believe it (laughs) okay this man is George Costanza if you've watched the show Seinfeld then you know that pretty much his entire character is defined by dishonesty 
at every step of the way, the shenanigans that they get into is somehow affected by George deceiving people, um, you know, outright lying. But at every, you know, he sleeps well at night because when he looks at himself, he's not a liar. He doesn't lie because he's got a set of rules whereby he can redefine anything that we might see him as lying as not actually lying. And so people who study this show have actually gone through and said, well, you know, if we can take all the different things that George Costanza has gotten himself, um, you know, broiled up in and, and extract what those rules are, they've come up with Costanza's rules on lying. And these are what they are. You know, it, basically all these different episodes you can take, it's not a lie if you believe it. It's not a lie if it doesn't help you. It's not a lie if it hurts you. It's not a lie if it helps someone else. It's not a lie if it doesn't hurt someone else. And on and on and on. And you can see at every point, there's a rationalization where he takes something that we would see as a lie, but in his own mind, he has manipulated it, deconstructed it, and reformed it as something other than a lie so that he can sleep peacefully knowing that he's an honest man. Now, as viewers, we look at this and we say, well, that's, you know, he's clearly got a self-serving philosophy whereby he can exonerate himself from the moral failings that otherwise we would all acknowledge. But that's George Costanza. We all see it for what it is. And the problem is, is that today we're going to look at a talk given by Dallin H. Oaks in a conference in 1993. And we're going to see if we can extract a similar list of rationalizations from Dallin H. Oaks and see what are Dallin H. Oaks rules on lying. And I think you'll be surprised. But remember, Dallin H. Oaks is an apostle, but he was also an attorney. He was the Supreme Court Justice in Utah for three years before he was called to be an apostle. And in 1993, he was giving this talk to an audience of attorneys, the alumni and students at the J. Reuben Clark law school of BYU. And so in looking at this talk, I couldn't do it myself because I'm just, you know, I, I don't know anything about the law. So I had to So I had to contact my favorite lawyer, Radio Free Mormon, and bring him into the show. Radio Free Mormon, how are you doing? Hi, Jonathan. How are you doing this wonderful, beautiful Friday morning? I'm doing good. I just clicked my mouse accidentally and it kicked me out of StreamYard. That's why I went blank. <laughs> I was wondering but what happened. You see how smooth we went, right, just to it? Okay. So, RFM, I, yes. I contacted you a few weeks ago and said, dude, we got to look at this talk. And it really came from your discussion with Bill Real, where you guys were looking at some of the distortions and lies and everything around the Hoffman and I'm like, dude, you know, the thing that explains how he can say this crap with a straight face is all found in this talk. Yes. And this was back in 1985, of course, when the, the bombs blew on Hoffman and everything came crashing down. And it was a, there was a press conference at that time in which Elder Oaks was involved. He gave a talk later that summer. Um, about uh, what was going on. And then in 1987, he gave a big talk after he'd been exposed that they were forgeries, remember? And yeah. uh, so now all of a sudden, he's not talking about how great salamanders are and how uh, it's actually faith promoting that it was yeah, mentioned that salamanders involved in this treasure dig. 
But uh, no, that's that's passe now because they're forgeries and he can get on with setting the record straight. And I think that I think that uh, he, there's a lot of blowback from that. I think that he has labored under the accusation or maybe the self questioning about his integrity and whether he's a liar. I think people had called him a liar. By the way, tonight, I'm not going to be calling Elder Oaks a liar. OK, I don't want to get in that trouble that uh, Bill Real got in vis-a-vis Elder Holland. We're not going to have a big a stamp. Liar, liar, pencil fire. Yeah, we're not going to have a big stamp on this program saying liar, well, liar, and, and actually, I, this we'll get into this layer, but later, but the, the, the distinction between liar and deceiver is actually kind of important in the way he's trying to rationalize things. things. But before we do that, I want to go back a little bit. How do we know about this talk? And it's interesting, it's not in general conference, it's not in the BYU publications that are for general BYU, it's not recorded on the BYU speeches website, There's, it's never published in the ends, and there's like no place that you can find this talk except in the annual newsletter for alumni and students of the law school. And so, you know, they, they, they lay it out, they have the transcript, and it's just so fascinating. I'm going to share it real quick so that we can see it in the way that it was published, but then I'm going to move to an easier uh, way to see it. So uh, so if we look at this here, this is now, you can go to, and we'll put the links in the show notes, it should already be there, but you can get the official BYU newsletter, you can see it, this is the first page of it, where you've got like four different people with four different ways of conceptualizing how they're talking, one with a forked tongue, one with no mouth, one with a brick over their mouth, and one with... Uh, I, I guess this is the one person who's free to speak. There's a dove coming out of their mouth. The one but then with the no mouth. The one with no mouth reminds me of that Charlie X episode from Star Trek. Do you remember that one? Charlie X. I don't. Okay. I do the, remember. The, the people who get it will get it. It's not worth going into. Sorry about that. Okay. No, it reminds me of the Twilight Zone movie. Where the anyway. All right. So. Okay. Gospel. Okay. So this is the first page. Gospel teaching about lying no can i and read that like, can i read that again because yeah. the way it's written is gospel teachings about lying i know it's you got just a huge word lying at the very beginning of the entire talk it's like this talk is about lying yeah now we already know that the wider public generally sees um a, attorneys as liars so it's just the beautiful irony of him giving this talk as an attorney to an audience of attorneys about lying. And it's so weird because I would expect the talk to be gospel teaching about honesty. Because usually when we talk about gospel stuff, they want to uh, focus on the positive part. So already there's something a little weird about this talk. I don't want to dwell too much on this. It's not really a legitimate uh, criticism of it, but okay. <clears throat> no, he didn't come up with the format for the title, but I think he came up with the title for the talk. Yeah. Okay, so now let's get to it. So it's given, I actually found a newspaper advertisement for this fireside. It was marketed as a fireside and it, the public was invited and um, it was given and then only the people who were actually in attendance in September of 1993, the 12th of September, 1993. And there's a little bit of goings on that are about to hit the scene in 1993 or the, or, or the fan yeah yeah exactly uh but it really hasn't hit yet mm -mm. now it hasn't hit the wider public but the people involved and of course i'm referring to the september 6. 
because you know them as the September 6 because in September of 1993, uh, six different intellectuals, feminists, uh, people on the margins of heterodoxy of the church were all seemingly summarily excommunicated, uh, including BYU prof professors, BYU pe um, people with connections to BYU itself. So being hyper-technical get... here as a lawyer, I think five were excommunicated and one was disfellowshipped. Okay, excellent. Very good. Okay, so <laughs> what I want to do is um, kind of go through this. Now, it's too much to read the whole thing, I think, for the purposes of, of here. I released a reading of it just a few days ago, so if you'd like to just drive and listen to it, you can hear someone read the whole thing, and we'll refer you to that for the full analysis. But we're just going to kind of go through here, knock out, just describe generally what he says, and then any comments that you would like to interject I've highlighted some things and we'll go from there. Jonathan, Jonathan, yep. I know this is your show, so I'm gonna be asking for permission here. I would like to take a few minutes to talk about the scandal. That's actually one of the biggest scandals of Elder Oak's career that happens the following month where he was okay. caught red-handed lying. Okay, Believe it or not. <laughs> The irony is is going to be delicious, but um, do Helpful. you want to start with that, or do you want to uh, do you want to do a lead in with that, or do that after this? I wanted to start with it because okay, go it ahead. Helps, for me, it helps me understand that this is the background of what's going on almost at exactly the same time as Elder Oaks is giving this talk about gospel teachings about lying, so that we can see what he actually does and how he actually conducts himself with regards to that issue of lying, which is gonna be happening just the following month. It's not 10 years later, it's right. not five years later. It's not, a, you, we can't say, oh, well, maybe he changed his mind about how he's gonna approach this issue. Right. This is exactly how he approaches the issue. And when, when we see what he does, then I think that is the template through which we must view what it is that he says on September 12th, 1993. All right, set it up. Okay. All right, here we go. So I'm just going to tell the story as it happened. It ends up unfolding and it actually unfolds publicly, which is the incredible thing. So it is September 10th, by the way. It's two days before he gives this talk. Let's back up for just a second. Like you mentioned, September uh, 6th. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry, the September 6th, right? Where six people get disciplined, five excommunicated, and I think one gets disfellowshipped. Anyway, it all happens the same month. And the church is spouting the same old nonsense about how the church leaders have nothing to do with these uh, excommunications and disciplinary proceedings. These are all done at a local level by the state presidents and bishops involved, right? And nobody's buying this, right? Because it's like, oh, really? So all of a sudden now, all of these state presidents and all these bishops are moved independently by some unknown force, uh, maybe the Holy Ghost, I guess, to all of a sudden take action against these six intellectuals. And, you know, it's like little Drew Barrymore says in E.T., give me a break. Nobody's buying this, right? So. Well, hold on a second. Now, when is nobody right. buying this? I think as soon as they're saying it. Okay. And, and so, so that we have the timeline right, this talk was given on the 12th of September. Yes. Most of those excommunications become final in the days after this talk. Yes. Uh, and so then it's after all these excommunications kind of all happen at once. So it's really in October that people are like, wait a second, this seems like a coordinated thing from on high. 
Right. Why is the first presidency or the central department of the church now coordinating excommunications in in many different areas all at once? And that's where now the denials come out. Oh no 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 no. Discipline is a local matter. The the brethren do not direct excommunications. And that's where people are like, wait a second, I'm not buying that. Right. Exactly. Thank you for the chronology. Now, the dirty secret is is that at least in one of these excommunications, which involved Paul Toscano. A, an apostle named Boyd K. Packer. Perhaps you've heard of him? Yes. You've heard of Boyd K. Packer? Okay. I, he hear, was, I hear his doleful, dulcet tones every time I watch you and Bill Real. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love the guy who does that impression. It's amazing. We have to pay him <laughs> extra every time we play it. But yeah. seriously, folks, seriously, the, the dirty secret was is that Boyd K. Packer did have contact with Paul Toscano's stake president regarding his excommunication proceeding. That's a fact, Jack, and you'll see why when we we go through this. But I want to put this out there. Spoiler alert. Yeah, he was involved because here's what happens is there's a guy named Steve Benson and Steve Benson is church royalty in a sense because his granddad is the very recent president of the church, Ezra Taft Benson, who had passed away, I think, just a few years before this. He became president in 1985. Of course, he was an apostle for, you know, ages before that, before he became the president of the church. So he's the grandson. And because he is the grandson of Ezra Taft Benson, I presume it's because he's a grandson, he is able to get a meeting, not only with Dallin Oaks, but also with Neil Maxwell. So they go to a meeting with these two apostles because he has some questions about things. Okay, uh, now just, just to make sure we clarify, Benson actually dies in 1994, a year, oh a year following this. So this is during that period of time that some people say, well, it's really like an interregnum where the prophet is incapacitated. And so you've got Oaks and Packer and Hinckley and Monson basically running the show, making the decisions. Um, there's probably some insider baseball in terms of how those decisions are made that I've heard people speculate on. But just so that we set this right. So Benson is having these interactions, having grown up with his granddad. He talks about that he's actually pretty close with his granddad, the prophet who um, has given him advice in his career. Um, you know, he's he eventually he's a Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist. He's he's no person to sniff at um, himself, but he's got some clout, as you mentioned, being royalty of the prophet. So he's able to arrange a meeting with Oaks and Maxwell, did you say? Yes, Neil Maxwell. We like to refer to him as Elder Maxwell. So, ah, yes. but the deal is Elder Maxwell's there, but he doesn't play in this at all. It's Elder Oaks, Elder Oaks, Elder Oaks, because in this meeting or a subsequent meeting, there's a couple of meetings, but in this meeting, Elder Oaks makes some revealing statements to Steve Benson. By the way, first off, he's an editorial cartoonist. So uh, Elder Oaks says we have to have absolute confidentiality on this meeting. OK, uh, what we say doesn't leave this room. It's total cone of silence stuff in this meeting. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that. Elder Oaks says about Elder Packer that Elder Packer did have a meeting with the state president of Paul Toscano relative to the excommunication proceeding. Now, the name of the state president, his last name is Heinz. I don't want to get too many names in here. I don't know if it's going to be important for what we read, but I just bring that up. And here's the two things, the two main things that Elder Oaks says in this meeting or the subsequent meeting. He says, you can't stage manage a grizzly bear. 
This is where that quote comes from. Okay. You can't stage manage a grizzly bear talking about, you know, I'm trying to, you know, keep Elder Packer from doing this because they shouldn't be doing this. He shouldn't be talking to the state president or the guy who's doing the excommunication on Paul Toscano. But dang it, he's going to do it anyway. Anyway. And he also says um, it was a mistake for Packer to meet with Heinz. That's why it's important. Mm -hmm. It was a mistake for Packer to meet with Heinz and a mistake for Heinz to ask for the meeting. So the way it's presented is uh, the state president Heinz asked for the meeting with Elder Packer. Apparently they knew each other. They were friends from way back, but he asked for this meeting and Elder Packer grants the audience and they have the meeting and uh, Elder Oaks is presenting it. This is a mistake. I didn't want it to happen. I tried to tell Elder Packer not to, but you can't stage manage a grizzly bear. Okay. So now here's the deal. As you said, Steve Benson is an editorial cartoonist for the Arizona Republic. Yes. That's important. Because uh, later on, now, I think it's in October. We're in October, and September 6th stuff has happened. Kaboom, kaboom, kaboom. And now, things are starting to swirl about the uh, involvement of church leadership in this. And a reporter, not Steve Benson, he's the cartoonist, a reporter from the same newspaper, i.e. a co-worker with Steve Benson, asked for an interview with Elder Oaks, which Elder Oaks grants. And apparently it's over the phone and apparently it's recorded. All right. So in this interview now, there's a number of questions this reporter's asking about involvement of Boyd K. Packer in the uh, excommunication of Paul Toscano. And did he have any involvement with the state president? Well, this appears to be asked a number of times in a number of different ways because Elder Oaks gives a number of misleading statements in response. And technically what he ends up doing, he gives four misleading statements about this, four deceptive, statement, uh, four deceptive statements about it. And one of them is apparently an absolute indefensible lie. And that statement is when Elder Oaks tells the reporter, I have no knowledge about that. Okay, now there's three other statements, all right? And we'll get to those here in a second because those are very important. I have no knowledge about that. Well, this hasn't been published yet in the Arizona Republic. This interview has not. But somehow, Steve Benson gets access to the transcript that his, you know, his co-worker, the reporter, uh, did of the interview. And he sees this line in there. And he said, what? The? This is not true. I mean... Elder Oaks told me that he did know about it. In fact, he told me you can't stage manage a grizzly bear and he thought it was a mistake for it to happen. So now um, Steve Benson contacts Elder Oaks and says, hey, you lied in this. <laughs> this is wrong. This is not true. And you need to either get this out of there and retract it or I'm going to go. Well, you got 24 hours, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm going to do it myself. So Elder Oaks now looks at it, sees it, and then he contacts the reporter within the 24 hours, apparently, and he says, hey, that was wrong. That's not correct. Please take that out of the article. And the reporter does take it out of the article, and then he runs the article with the other three misleading statements in it. And so now Steve Benson's going, well, wait a second. Yeah, you took that out, but you're still misleading people. You're still being deceptive on the issue. And so Steve Benson now goes public about it and alleges that Elder Oaks is not telling the truth. He alleges that Elder Oaks is a liar. Mm -hmm. 
for having done this. And he also brings up the prior statement that was in the transcript that was taken out. So and I actually went and dug this up just so that we can add some visuals to uh, our audience. This is the article that was published by that second reporter, not Steve Benson, where now because of all this September 6, um, you know, excommunications, they, you know, there seems to be some internal disruption. And so if you go down, he's interviewing the apostles as part of this. And as you come down and look at his interview with uh, Dallin Oaks, he mentions, let's see if we can find the ellipsis. Here it is. <clears throat> Oaks said, I'll make it a little bit bigger. Oaks said that if Elder Packer is having any conversations with the court, with the court, it is outside the normal channels and dot, dot, dot. That's actually right there is where the redaction happens. And then we learn later from Oaks' own letter that what was supposed to be there is, and I have no knowledge if he did, if he gave a directed, ver directed verdict against Toscano, that is contrary to policy and irregular, and it is contrary to what I know about Elder Packer and the way he operates. Okay, can we talk about this for a second? Because these are two of the other three statements that Steve Benson took umbrage about, where... Oak said that if Elder Packer is having any con, if, <laughs> yeah, if. That's a hypothetical. I have no idea if he did or not, but right, if because, he was. Because the deception is obviously, I don't know. Right. I mean, you don't say if unless you're projecting the idea of I don't know. If Elder Packer is having any conversations with the court, the disciplinary court, it is outside the normal channels. Okay. And if he gave a directed verdict, oh my gosh, you know what a directed verdict is, right? Yeah, he's telling the state president to excommunicate Paul Toscano's ass. Exactly. Yep. That's the directed verdict. That is contrary to policy and irregular. And it is, and then he goes, and it is contrary to what I know about Elder Packer and the way he operates. Now, this is a double lie. Okay. Yep. First off, he's saying, I don't know wait, if he wait, did. Wait. Is it a double decker lie? It's a double decker lie. It's <laughs> okay, double decker we'll deceit. It's totally <laughs> yeah. double decker deceit. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry that we'll get into that later. But when Oaks goes on to defend himself, he's like, I'm the victim of a double decker deceit. Yes. And th this and that plays out publicly. This is what's so incredible. Yeah. This episode in church history is one of the best, most fun episodes Revealing. ever. And I think that uh, it needs to never be forgotten. Yeah. Okay, especially since Elder Oaks is now uh, next in line to the presidency. Uh, but anyway, he says uh, that's it's a double. It's a double lie because if uh, or double deception. Um, if he gave a directed verdict, then it is contrary to what I know about Elder Packer and the way he operates. So he wants to, first off, say, I don't know if it happened. Mm -hmm. And second off, uh, it wouldn't have happened anyway because it would have been out of uh, uh, character for Elder Packer to do this when he knows that's exactly what he did. And okay. he knows that Packer's character is unpredictable because you can't predict what a grizzly bear is going to do. It's hard to stage manage them, I understand. Yeah. So this is why, I mean, I think it's understandable when you read it, why it is that um, uh, Steve Benson took umbrage at this, especially after what had happened privately between him and Elder uh, Oaks, uh, first off in the meeting, second off with the contact about removing that one thing, and then he leaves, it takes it out, but everything else gives the exact same impression. And the yeah. third thing, the third statement, the third statement other than the, um, mm. the lie that was okay. redacted, was, um, let's see here, you've got those two. Oh, it's in the summary where he summarizes and Elder Oaks set, told the reporter, quote, so that's all I know about that at this point. 
I don't know if you have that there in the article, but it's it's well, in there somewhere. I think, yeah, I think that may have been in the reporter's uh, transcription of their conversation, but I don't believe that statement made it into the published uh, thing. And if you read Benson's account later, once he's like, okay, well, if you're going to lie, then any any concept that there was a non-disclosure arrangement between us that we're going to keep our conversation confidential is null and void because you're misrepresenting the facts. Well, Benson mentions that he actually went with this reporter. Apparently, they went to Salt Lake City for this interview, and, and Benson went there basically to help him, help the reporter know what to ask, how to approach things, and so was immediately able to listen to the recording and picked up that there was a, a flagrant lie being told here. Right. So that's what goes on there. And then, then as you mentioned, this is so bad. Can you imagine a an apostle getting caught so badly in a misstep of this sort that that apostle actually writes a response that's published in the Salt Lake Tribune. That's how <laughs> bad this is. As an apostle, this is how bad it is that he actually, and I think he writes too, but the, the main one is uh, the one that you mentioned and he titles it, he titles it, well, he doesn't title it, but he uses the expression that he's the victim of a double decker deceit that's his expression i'm a victim of a double decker deceit because what is it uh i have okay, been the victim so of, I, because one be betrayal of promises of confidentiality see he's pissed off not so much yeah. that he got that he lied mm -hmm. he's pissed off that steve benson broke the vow of confidence that he yes. had invoked upon him in this meeting and by the way, by the way, this gets to George Costanza's number eight, which I wrote down as you were showing it, because yeah. George Costanza's number eight is, it's not a lie if nobody can prove it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and the thing is, so I've, I've got the article here. This is from 21 October 1993 uh, from the Salt Lake Tribune. You know, it's 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 on uh you know, page A A19, so it's buried in a little bit, but it's Oaks, I've been the victim of double-decker deceit. It's a second paragraph in the end. Yeah, so... Just so you know. Yeah. The penultimate okay, yeah, paragraph. Yeah, here he goes. My perception of this matter, because he spends the whole time, like, laying out the timeline and everything, and I think he's thinking like a lawyer, like, technically I told him he wasn't supposed to disclose the contents of that first meeting, so anything that happens after that is clearly a breach on his part. But what, what it essentially is, it's like, hey... You're under covenant. You're under oath to keep those things. And I'm an apostle and you swore to me on your own integrity that you wouldn't disclose it. So that means that I can no, now go misrepresent anything. And if you break that secrecy, then it's on you. You're the one who's an oath breaker. You know, I don't have any accountability because I'm not lying. I'm simply, you know, we'll learn what he might be thinking that he's doing later. But so my perception of this matter is simple. I've been the victim of double-decker deceit. Number one, betrayal of confidences of confidentiality. And number two, false accusations of lying. Oh, but my heart goes out to all who have suffered from this painful sequence of events, especially me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, by the way, also notice, he never, ever denies what it is that... Um, Steve Benson is saying about the content no. of their conversation in the no. meetings. That's huge because if he doesn't deny it, you know it's true. Yeah. He's tacitly admitting that. But the the whole idea is this, is that in the, it's in this um, article too. By the way, these articles are published again, republished in the December 1993 Sunstone Magazine. 
where they do an we'll article a, on it. Yeah, we'll put a link to that in the description as well. You, you can find a little bit more easily there. Okay, now. Here, go back. Go, stay there, please. Can you go okay. back one, two, three? Oh, three paragraphs from the end. Because here's something that is critical that just hit me at 4.30 this morning. And this gives us the window into the mindset of Elder Oaks. Before we get to that, though, let me just go ahead and say this. It's an hour interview. We know what the interview is about. It's about this entire subject. This didn't happen a long time ago. This isn't a minor detail that Elder Oaks uh, could reasonably be thought of to have perhaps forgotten. He talked to Steve Benson about it within the past month. Uh, this is everything that's swirling right now. This is the huge controversy in the church. He knows perfectly well that he remembers this. And so when he says, I have no knowledge of that, he's going to characterize that in here as a misstatement or a mistake that he made during the course of a one-hour interview. And when it was pointed out to him, he immediately contacted the reporter and retracted it. Okay, that is not believable. That is not believable. You don't say when you're asked over and over again, apparently about the same issue, I have no knowledge of that. When you have knowledge of that, he knows he did have knowledge of it, obviously, but he, he overstepped the bounds of propriety and said, I have no knowledge of that. Now, as a lawyer, do you want me to tell you what's going on in his mind when he said that? Please do. Okay. What he's saying is, I have no knowledge of that. I was not present when that meeting between Elder Packer and the state president took place. Therefore, I do not have any personal knowledge of it. All I know of is the fact that it was talked about, and I talked about it with Elder Packer. And, uh, but that's not personal knowledge, right? That's hearsay. So that's what's going through his mind when he says this. That's his justification as he says it. And this is, I'm sure, not the only time he's done this particular tactic. It's real, actually quite common. That's so this why is I can, lawyer lawyer thinking to be like, well, if I say that I what I know, then uh, a counter counsel, the opposing counsel would object that it was hearsay and therefore be invalidated. So essentially, it is hearsay, and so it's essentially invalid. And so I can't even acknowledge that I have any any knowledge of its occurrence. Exactly. Yeah, that's what he's thinking. But when it gets pointed out to him, he realizes that if he has to explain that to a public audience, they're probably not going to buy that. Yeah. So he says, no, I'm just going to have that one taken out. But he leaves in the other three statements where he effectively says the same thing. Now, here's the important part in that third sentence. Let me see here. Uh, in summary. OK, in summary. In summary, when I found that I could not defend the correctness of one brief sentence in a long interview, I immediately contacted the reporter with through that sentence, doing so more than three days before the story was scheduled for publication. Okay, mm -hmm. here's the critical part. When I found that I could not defend the wow. correctness <laughs> of that brief statement. So that's that's his whole mindset. He can say anything he wants as long as it's not a flat-out lie. This is his real philosophy. Yeah. He can say things that are deceptive in that they're meant to give an impression of one thing when actually if he could parse it to the degree that it's not really a lie. All right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But he could not defend this one. But that means he can defend the other three statements that were published. 
And once again, if you go to those three statements, and I say this is critical because when he says, so that's all I know about that at this point, he feels that he can defend that. He also thinks he can defend the statements regarding if Elder Packer is having any conversations with Kerry Hines, Toscano State President, yeah. it is outside the normal channel. And I have known, uh, excuse me, and if Elder Packer is having any conversations with him, it is contrary to what I know about Elder Packer and how he operates. Yeah. Okay. He can defend those. Yeah, because those are, you know, not absolute denials and there's hypotheticals and everything, but you can't defend that definitive statement of, and I have no knowledge that he did. Right. Yeah. So basically, this is how he operates. This is how he actually uh, views lying. And he is much closer to George Costanza than to yeah. what most people would think uh, of for an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there he is. There's the guy. Number eight, it's not a lie if you, okay, eight, it's not a lie if nobody can prove it, right? Yep. Nobody's supposed to be able to prove it because the evidence can't come out because it was said in this secret meeting and then Steve Benson spills the beans. Curse you, yeah. Steve Benson. And number nine, it's not a lie if you don't get caught, right? Exactly. And this is the this is the other thing. This is the other thing that I have to say. He was perfectly willing to let that one sentence go out. I have no knowledge of the matter, which even he said was indefensible, even though he knew it was indefensible when he said it. And he was fine for that to go public and to be represented that way until he got caught. Yeah. Until Steve Benson said, hey, that's not true. And you told me different. And then only after he got caught, did he contact the reporter and say, take that out, but leave the other three in, take that one out. It's not defensible. And so I'm I just, think, yeah. yeah, I think you've laid out a really good timeline and kind of seen some of the, you know, what the investment Oaks has in not being considered a liar. I mean, he, you can, you can sense the palpable defensiveness of the apostle being called a liar by some lousy cartoonist <clears throat> and, and having the receipts to prove it. So now he's got to go on the record and explain. But so I think it's time now for us to look a little bit more yes. into the nuts and bolts and gears of what is the foundational ethic that Oaks has when he approaches the concept of honesty, dishonesty, lying. How can he, you know, massage these ideas in his head and, and sleep peacefully at night, believing that he's not a liar? So, yeah. So and so. Whatever he says in this talk, I have to read it against that background and knowing how he operates. And if there's anything in his talk that conflicts with what he actually did, once again, the talk given September 12th, 1993, this whole thing happening in September and October of 1993, then I'm going to have to disregard what he says and go with what it is that he actually does as a clear indication of what yeah. he really Believes, And of course, we're left with this problem that we've got to look at his his talk about his philosophy, about gospel teachings, about lying and know that a person who's a proven deceiver is the one who's now saying this is how I actually feel about the subject. Right. And that's where this irony is beautiful, because he's giving this talk before his lies actually splash onto the headlines. Uh, yes. And so it's not like, as you say, he could say he changed his mind or anything like it. it's not long ago. It's like he's already met with Benson 
uh, just a few days before this talk, and they yes. subsequently have more communication. But this talk is given on September 12th, 1993. He starts out, again, in beautiful classic Oak style. He's, he's given Roman numeral characters to each section of his talk. The first section is just some nostalgia stuff, you know, kind of inflating his ego a little bit more. He's dealt with the Attorney General of the United States and all this other stuff. And then we get to section two. It's shameless name dropping. Yes. The first section was unprepared, informal part of my talk that I've written down here. And then section two. <laughs> so, you know, the first paragraph is essentially truth is good. The second paragraph oh, no, no, is... No, no, Read the first line. This is, this okay. is wonderful. Just the there, are few, there are few words in the English language that any more beautiful connotation than the word truth. The scripture teaches us that the glory of God is intelligence and then adds, or in other words, light and truth. Yeah, I just meant the first line. You're doing great. I love your... But, <laughs> but when he says there are few words in the English language with any more beautiful connotations than the word truth. I mean, against this backdrop, that's a fascinating statement. What kind of mind actually says that? I don't know. But uh, perhaps one of those beautiful connotations of the word truth involved deception. I don't know. There's a lot of well, connotations. It, yeah, it's almost like... So if you spend any time listening to intellectuals do this thing called deconstruction that you hear bandied around a lot. Usually it's like, how can we take a concept that normally constrains us to objective reality or to some moral principle, and how can we just break it apart by looking and playing word games and then reshape it as something that allows us to do what we want to do anyway? You know, the, the guy who came up with this, there's two French philosophers, Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida, and they deconstructed, oh, all these things are social constructions, and then later, they wrote letters trying to justify pedophilia because they had deconstructed consent to be something that's just a social construct and kids should be able to have. So it's like deconstruction can go too far. But what it realizes when you're doing deconstruction is that you're trying to get around some hard moral principle. And so when you say, oh, the truth has such a beautiful connotation, then it follows. But what is truth really? And what is lying really? Well, let's take it apart and, and, and see. Let's deconstruct truth and lying. And that's really what I see this whole talk as doing. Can you read the first line of the second paragraph? All right. There is no more authoritative or clear condemnation of the dishonest and lying person than the Savior's description of the devil as a liar and the father of lies. Okay, he can say this, and actually, I think he honestly believes that does not apply to him. Oh, yeah. Well, but I, I think that's because we're taking lying. That's why it's in big letters. And we're saying, let's deconstruct lying and make it be so that you have such a strict definition of what actually is lying that anything else is not lying. And so we can exist in this anything else paradigm as long as we know and we'll learn what the rules are that would qualify as actual lying because everything else is not lying. Right. So he quote the first paragraph, he quote, quote scripture about telling the truth. Uh, second paragraph, mainly he quotes scriptures about lying and that's bad. And yep. then third paragraph, quoting general authorities to the same effect. And, right. then, and if, the, if, the, if the general authorities have condemned lying, then clearly they're not liars because they've condemned it. Well, yeah, obviously. And he's condemning it right now. Exactly. So, and then he goes talking about Satan some more. Satan's the great deceiver and yeah. the father of lies. But notice what he said. But he will also tell the truth when it serves his purposes. Satan's mm -hmm. most effective lies are half truths or lies accompanied by the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> and and I, this is this is where he starts looking at lies and deception a little more deeply, and, and in, in a way that you could 
legitimately say. I think the, this first section is kind of like what Mormons conceptualize honesty, truth, and lying as in their own mind. And so I think we'd all have a lot of agreement with some of the things that he says here in terms of how the gospel actually does teach about lying and truths and honesty. It does. And it's actually, you don't lie and you are honest and in all your dealings with your fellow men. And so that's the gospel teachings. And that's actually and, how he summarizes this, this yeah. first section. And you don't misrepresent things to give a misleading connotation. And he uses some examples of using, when I say misrepresenting, you don't use the truth to further a lie. You don't say true things in order to convey a false impression. And so he uses the example of we don't describe Paul of Tarsus as an apostle who went about to destroy the church, even though technically Paul early on was trying to destroy the church and then later became an apostle. And you don't say that King David is an adulterer who was also a prophet, even though that plays into his story. Uh, it misrepresents perhaps the, the characters themselves. And it doesn't at all. King David was an adulterer. That's one of the big things about him. That's why there's a big famous story about him. And he was also a prophet. That's funny because there's nothing in the Old Testament that indicates he was a prophet, to my knowledge. He had a prophet. His name was Nathan. But anyway, regardless, regardless, what he's, what he, here's where he's trying to say, don't say bad things about important people. Mm -hmm. uh, because if you do, even if they're true, then you're using truth unrighteously. That's the, the next. It is not enough yeah. merely to refrain from lying. We must be righteous in the way we use the truth, which means we do not speak evil of the Lord's anointed. Even if the criticism is true. All right. <clears throat> okay. And then he, he punctuates this section by saying that I've conveyed what I understand to be the doctrine of the church. I'll now suggest some applications of that doctrine, relying on my personal and prayerful conclusions. Okay. So anything you want to say? He, he starts out with a story about his time as Utah Supreme Court Justice, where he had to disbar an attorney who had defrauded a client and lied to both his client and the court. He follows that up with a story of the Attorney General of the United States under Bill Clinton, um, who committed suicide after he gave a rousing speech. I mean, not directly after, but uh, you know, a short time after he gave a speech to his law school class, uh, extolling the virtues of personal integrity and how that is so important in your professional career as a lawyer. Uh, that was Vincent Foster Jr. And then he goes on a little tirade about lawyer lying. And I think this plays a little bit into why he's so defensive, both as an apostle and an attorney, is that he considers people of his profession to have a great deal of investment personally in their uh, integrity and reputation as truth tellers and not liars. Right. And uh, he says that lawyers don't lie any more than anybody else, but they get punished more severely. Yeah. Is, that's probably true for apostles as well if they get caught. And, and punishes may just be how how much they're diminished in the minds of their followers, but uh, right. I'm not I, aware I that like Elder Oaks, I'm not aware that Elder Oaks got punished for this at all, by the way, except for, you know, getting spanked in publicly in the media. Yeah. Uh, but by the way, I also have to add this thing about that whole, that whole article. Here's the hysterical thing, right? While this is all going on and Elder Oaks is giving his version of events and is playing out publicly, Elder Packer gave his version of events. And what Elder Packer said was, that, yeah, he was contacted by the state president about having a meeting. And Elder Packer went to the Quorum of the Twelve and told them about it and asked them if it would be okay for him to meet with the state president. And the Quorum of the Twelve said, sure, go ahead. Oh, boy. <laughs> circles within circles. Yeah. Wow. 
I, I didn't find the source for that. I hadn't heard that. So uh, that's interesting. I know that in that article that Steve Benson's colleague published in the Arizona Republic that had Oaks's statement, they also had apparently contacted Packer and he acknowledged that he met with Hines, but he didn't give that background information that the 12 had authorized that meeting. It's in the Sunstone article. Oh, okay. Excellent. Okay. So he then goes into, uh, look. he's looked now at lawyer lines, but now he's going to say, you know, lies of other officials, the lies of public officials and the lies of religious leaders are also extremely damaging in the way they degrade the moral tone of the entire community. Officials' lies and clergymen's lies are especially damaging to impressionable young people. So there's a revealing part of this thing now. So, yeah. so I think this is going to reveal that he knows exactly what the consequences of him lying and being caught in a lie will be to his own personal reputation and to the um, the reverence that members would have for him as an apostle because it impeaches his integrity. And it kind of says, well, if you're going to lie about this, what else are you lying about? Yeah, this actually, here's where he segues actually from talking about lawyers. All mm -hmm. right. And that's fine. Just talk about lawyers if you want to. But, you know, he's going to segue and he's going to now start talking about not just lawyers, but clergymen. Now, he is a clergyman. I don't know if he sees himself as a clergyman. He's obviously a religious leader. But what he says, if you can scroll back up to that part, mm -hmm. is actually, this is the closest thing I've ever seen to anything insightful or prophetic from Elder Oaks, where he says, clergymen's lies are especially damaging to impressionable young people. What is the number one reason that young people and others are leaving the church in droves today? It's they when like they, they've been deceived. Yep. So when they wake up, they see the facts, they see what's going on. They watch a program like this and they say, oh my gosh, I trusted these guys. They told me to trust them. They told me they were telling me the truth. And then they were, they were selling me a bill of goods. They haven't been honest with me. Yeah, exactly. And it does no, and damage this, impressionable young people. Go ahead. This, this very much played a role in my own journey. I can remember the time where, you know, I was investigating or I was starting to just question things and uh, my spouse at the time turned to me and said, have you ever heard of lying for the Lord? And I said, no, that would not be wrong. Satan's the father of all lies. You can't lie for the Lord. And that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole of really polygamy at first, of just seeing how if you just lay the timeline out of the marriage dates and Joseph Smith's statements, he clearly lied. And that was the first thing that broke in my image of the church was that if the prophet is willing to lie about something so sensitive as as that then it impeaches their integrity and how can you trust them on anything and so he understands the consequences the optics of clergymen being caught in lies and and he even he, he doesn't use the religious example but he uses a statement talking about companies lying that if you transpose everything that they say about a product or service from a company into the religious realm, you can see that he knows exactly what the consequences are. And I think this is worth reading. Um, where it says, companies are discovering, and he's, he's quoting a, a editorial that he believes reflects his understanding of the optics and consequences of deception. Companies are discovering that when they do the right thing, their integrity is beneficial in subtle ways. Employees feel proud of their company simply because they feel they can be proud of themselves. Church members can be proud of their church 
because they can be proud of themselves. An honest company is one that you can depend on. A church that is honest is one you can depend on. While it may keep some doors closed to new business, your current customers will give repeat business and your client list will grow. If your church leaders and your church act with integrity, you won't get everybody to join, but you know your, your membership base will grow. Have truths, distortions of fact in advertising, package mislabeling, merchandise mockdowns, and shoddy merchandise are no longer acceptable business practices. Whitewashing history, uh, ill-informed, toxic, and manipulative policies and procedures, uh, you know, deceptions to the public, uh, misleading advertisements, misleading church histories, uh, deplorable conference talks, all of these things are no longer acceptable religious practices. And um, in the new world of globalized markets, only those companies which incorporate integrity and honesty as a byproduct of their goods and services will survive. Only churches that employ integrity and honesty, authenticity, vulnerability, all those things that when you're dealing with an imperfect organization you have to have, those are the ones that will survive. And then he concludes it, he concludes it that says, you know, the same should, could, and I would, uh, I will hope be said of lawyers and law firms, leaving out that he said that this also applies to clergymen. And you could, as I've tried to do here, you could employ the same principles in the realm of religions. Yes, exactly. Um, let me tell you this about Joseph Smith and polygamy, okay? Because Joseph Smith lied about polygamy, about practicing polygamy. He may have done carefully worded denials, as it's mentioned or put in the, um, the church essay on the subject. They call it carefully worded denials, which is code for lying. Um, and he did that. And I think that obviously there would have been horrible consequences if he had told the truth about it. And so legally, as well as in the church, so there's an argument about whether it was the right thing for him to lie. And I think there's a legitimate argument that can be made from people who believe that, that, that he's a prophet and that this came from God. Okay. However, it sets a dangerous precedent because what you're saying is in this instance, there was a good reason to lie. And what you're saying then is if I believe in another instance and in another arena that there is a good reason to lie, then I am justified in lying. All right. And now we get to the, what are the justifications for lies and how can we define that scenario where there's a justification as something other than a lie so that we can continue con to condemn lying while holding a secret definition, a private definition for this thing that we're doing that's other than lying. And that's where I think it's important when we talk about secret definitions that transform something that you say into something other than a lie you brought up the uh the exact example that you need that you want to use and that is uh what i like to refer to affectionately as footnote 22. so if you go into the plural marriage and kirtland and nauvoo uh gospel topic essay and look at when they're talking about joseph smith and his statements uh look at footnote 22 because it says the rumors prompted both members and leaders to issue carefully worded denials that denounced spiritual wifery and polygamy, but were silent about what Joseph Smith and others saw as divinely mandated celestial plural marriage. So they are employing now the Oaks ethic online, which is that you redefine the thing that you don't want to be guilty of and then hold a private definition of it based on your own justification. So if you go to footnote 22, it says, if you look at the Don Isles, polygamy was understood to mean the marriage of one man and more than one woman, but without church sanction. 
So anytime now that you go back and you see Joseph Smith saying, we are not practicing polygamy, then you just have to understand the audience, the wider view would define polygamy as you're marrying more than one person, period. It doesn't matter what justification or anything, you're just, that's what you're doing. Whereas he in his head is saying polygamy is you're marrying more than one person without church permission. And so what they're doing is you're marrying more than one person with church permission, AKA celestial marriage. It's not polygamy. It's something totally different. Therefore, ergo, not a lie. And, and that's what we're now seeing. Oaks setting the framework for this is the rhetorical device that you use to exonerate yourself. Yeah. He's following the example of Joseph Smith. It's a yeah. two, two pronged, uh, process. First, you redefine what it is that you are denying so that you're not really lying when you deny it, even though you know that everybody thinks that that's what you're denying. You've reframed yeah. it in your head. And then the second part is you don't actually tell what it is that you're really doing, because that was yeah. the other part, right? But they were yep. silent. Yeah. Okay. Hey, that's fascinating. What a great quote. And it's from the church's essay on the church's website. That's a how-to yep. manual about how to deceive. Can I ask you a question here, Jonathan? This has nothing yeah. to do with what we're talking about right now. But I just got a notice on my computer that it's going to shut down in okay. 10 minutes. Is there any way I can circumvent that? It uh, doesn't let well, me it doesn't let me put it off. Is it for power battery reasons or is it a rebooting thing? It's a rebooting thing. Oh, uh, this should yeah. about updates. Um, yeah, you should be able to. It doesn't give you let you say uh, no. reschedule for period of no, time. not this one. All right. Well, if that happens, then I'll just fill the air while you do a reboot, and then you can just reconnect. It's going to happen. It'll take a while. So, sorry, it's my computer. <laughs> That's okay. Well, we'll I see apologize. How it, goes. it may it tells me what I'm going to do. Okay, you're we're all slaves to technology in that regard. Deucedly inconvenient, I must say. Okay, so now we've got to section four of his talk, where he specifically calls out this concept of lying for the Lord. And uh, he invokes the hallowed name of Professor Hugh Nibley. Yeah, and this is one of the things that really flummoxes me when I'm trying to find a consistency between Elder Oaks's actions with uh, the whole Steve Benson grizzly bear fiasco and what it is he says here, because now he is going to say that it is not morally permissible to lie, even if you're promoting a good cause. So he's saying it's not even if it's a good thing to lie that it's morally permissible. He's going to say, no, when when leaders of the church lied about polygamy, he's going to say that was wrong, 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 not justifiable. And so then I'm wondering, how are you balancing this in your head with what you did over here with Steve Benson in the Arizona Republic interview? I don't have an answer for that. Well, I, I think it's useful at this point for us to talk a little bit about lying just as a general concept, you know, because I don't want to convey the impression that either you or I believe that we are moral absolute. You should never, ever lie. You should never misrepresent or anything. Because frankly, if my girlfriend says, do these jeans make my butt look big? I don't care. I don't even have to look like I'm going to say no, because unless you I can't figure out in the world of, of WAP, if that's supposed to be good or bad, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the badonkadonk is good or not. At any rate, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give the impression of something that she wouldn't want. It's always going to be what she wants, regardless of the truth. You should look first before you lie, because that makes your lie more believable. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. I'll make sure. And these are the two examples that we always come up with that always what, come up in this context. What's the other right? example? 
Well, you know, uh, your wife saying, uh, does, do you like this dress? Just make yeah. me look like you lie. Um, if the Nazis come knocking on your door, do you have Jews hidden in your attic? You lie. Mm. Okay. So it's at either end of that spectrum, right? Big and small. Yeah, yeah you're going to lie because there is another principle that you believe and are devoted to that in the context of that situation is more important than telling the truth. That's why we lie in those situations, right? Yeah. The way I like to look at it is that, you know, we all have different values and those values have a form of hierarchy where some values are more important than others. And I think you and I and anyone that's engaged with this stuff places honesty as a very high value. But there are other values that sometimes subvert that. So in the case of a Nazi saying, where are the Jews in your attic? You know, your willingness to defend the life of people who are oppressed in that situation is a higher value than being honest to the SS. And so that's where those things come into play. Now, this is where, you know, Mormons looking at Mormonism would say, well, defending the church is a higher value and furthering the kingdom of God is a higher value. Well, you can look at any other organization that subverts their values with religious decrees. You can look at, um, you know, there's this group called the Children of God. And one of their secret slash sacred teachings justifies pedophilia, justifies sex with children as a secret teaching. And so they could say that hiding and lying about that doctrine is a higher value and it justifies that because they've got to preserve their sacred duty and and people looking at even um warren jeffs you know their secret doctrine which allows sexual abuse of minors was also sacred and secret looking at now joseph smith and secret plural marriages those secret things justified public lies because they were higher values and this is that dangerous principle where if you reify if you make it real and say that it can exist it enables and empower some very dangerous things. So you don't want to find that in your religious organization. Like and I think what you said is very important. Let me get this in here before I get booted out for a bit, is that the question then is, what is Elder Oak's highest priority? Because if we know what his highest priority is, then we have a good insight into what it is that he will lie in order to protect. Yeah. And I think it's clear from every his entire life and everything he says that his highest priority is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as an organization, as an institution, as he would probably put it, the good name of the church. And protecting the good name of the church is more is his top priority. And therefore, if it ever comes into conflict with his other obligation, I'll put it down here, of telling the truth and being honest, then we know which is going to give. Okay, so uh, let's see. You just uh, let me know if you fall off, and then we'll we'll. Oh, I think you'll I think you'll notice. Okay, <laughs> okay. So then he's again. So he invokes Professor Nibley, who first goes over some of the rationalizations that people use for lying for a good cause, and he invokes physicians. He says sometimes physicians will have to um, tell fibs to patients to help them along. Uh, so I'm a physician. That's actually not true in terms of you can. You can frame what you say and convey to patients in a way that will make it easier for them to understand, but in no way should you misrepresent things to patients. 
And there's this concept called informed consent, which is when you're dealing with the patient and you're, they've allowed you into their most vulnerable point of their life and are relying on your expertise and your professionalism and your ethical conduct, you are supposed to explain everything that they would need to know in order to make a decision and apply their consent. But it requires that they know the good, the bad, the ugly, and other uh, options. And so when you invoke that, as a way to try to justify lying for goodness, it's an incorrect application of the medical profession. And the fact that he's now using this to inform his own decision to withhold information from members. See, the part of the, when you look back at the broad landscape of church history, they've withheld parts of church history in a paternalistic mode saying, well, the members, it would hurt faith for them to know about the fullness of Joseph Smith's polygamy or the translation of the Book of Mormon or any of these other things. So we're just gonna hide that information from them. Informed consent requires that you give all that information so that people make a decision with possession of knowledge. Otherwise, you're interfering with their consent, interfering with their agency, because you're manipulating the situation in which they make their choices. Right. And this is another thing that's going to be high on his totem pole of priorities, not only protecting the good name of the church, but let's give him credit for really believing that the LDS church is true, that it has the priesthood, that it has the ordinances. It's the restoration, and only through the LDS Church can people be exalted to the celestial kingdom and live together with families with God and Jesus, right? The whole nine yards. Mm -hmm. That means that that is the highest priority. Therefore, if there is something that's going to hurt that or impede that from happening for members of the church or for non-members to join the church, then... Mm -hmm. Lot, then, you, you know, it's the same thing as your wife asking you if these yeah. pants make her, her butt look big, because what are you going to do? Obviously, it's more important. These are the Jews in the attic. These yeah. are the Mormons in the celestial kingdom. It's the You've higher gotta, cause. Yes, it's a higher cause. And therefore, deception is justified per se. All right, RFM, we've got someone saying that there may be a delay reboot icon on your desktop. If you want to just check that real quick. A delay okay. reboot icon. Yeah, on, your on desktop. my desktop. If you okay. Minimize your web browser and take a look and see if there is. I better hurry up because I got just two minutes now. Okay, so then he goes on after using this. You know, he he uses the things that Nibley cites as past justifications, and then says, "Well, Nibley condemns this." And then he mentions two scriptural examples, and he says, um, "One of the some of the manifestations where you, it's okay to tell a lie for a good cause." Um, that Nibley cites and condemns is it was common practice for Christian scholars in the Middle Ages, both without scrupule, to put forward older texts with slight alterations as their own compositions and to put forth their own compositions without scrupule as ancient texts. Now he's condemning this practice. Now, uh, what do you, what is he describing there, RFM? You, you are know. so funny to be asking me that question as I'm trying to see if I can delay my reboot. <laughs> okay, I'll um, tell you because I that's okay. No, it so was rhetorical, wasn't it? It was. What do you think he was describing there? He was describing something affectionately referred to as pseudepigrapha, pseudepigrapha, pseudo, i.e. fake, and epigrapha, i.e. writings. And he's saying basically back in ancient time, some guy would be like, you know, if I write something with my name, Joe Blow, Nobody's going to listen. But if I write it and I say, hey, it was Moses or it was, uh, you know, it, 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 Solomon or whatever, then people are going to read it because they think they're seeing the words of that. And that's so, so that's how people would get their ideas to be more widely disseminated 
and um, publicly known, and it was a concept called pseudepigrapha. Now, this is interesting if you've been in the world of Mormon apologetics, because more recently, this concept of pseudepigrapha has come onto the scene through the medium of the good professor, Richard Bushman, because in a, in a symposium where they're talking about this concept of translation, he says, Joseph Smith's Book of Moses and Abraham and the writing of Enoch and the Book of Moses bear resemblance to this large corpus of scripture in that they came in the form of writings in another person's name. Joseph was producing pseudepigrapha. Oh, yeah, and he actually says that? He, he actually says that. Uh, he says Joseph was producing pseudepigrapha, and he says that in the mode of justifying and excusing um, these new realities that we're compelled to accept about uh, Joseph Smith's authorship of the Book of Abraham. And I think this is actually starting right at that moment. Joseph was producing pseudepigrapha in the very time when scholars were taking these writings seriously again. All right. So basically what he's saying is that we need to look at the Book of Moses and the Book of Abraham as Joseph writing using the name of Moses and Abraham as though they were actually writing it, but it was really Joseph writing it. And so suddenly you don't have to be worried about the anachronistic nature of some of the things that uh, are contained in there. You don't have to be worried about anything, really. You can simply say it's pseudepigrapha. And not only can you do that, but because there are books in the actual Bible that as biblical scholars have gone and looked at the history of where do these books come from, some of them are acknowledged pseudepigrapha. They're not actually written by the person that you would say that they were writing. So the logic then goes in this apologetic vein that if we're okay with the books of the Bible and we still consider them to be legitimate scripture, then the books of uh, the book of Moses, the book of Abraham from Joseph Smith should also be considered legitimate scripture. Now, let's take that logic to its next, because all of these things, all these justifications of lies then have implications. The other implication is, well, we've got a book called uh, the, the Sealed Portion. And the Sealed Portion is something that there's, you know, there's this, this idea of, well, the Sealed Portion will come out eventually. And, and when Joseph Smith told his story of the Book of um of Mormon, there was the uh, sealed portion of the plates that were going to come out in the future, in some future time. And you can Google the sealed portion and you can see that there is a book that's actually as long or longer than the Book of Mormon that is called the sealed portion. And you can read it and it speaks in King James English. It has chapter headings. It looks for all the world like a uh, scripture in the mode of any of the other scriptures that we have in the church. Um, it says here it's, you know, Christopher, not it's Chris Namelka is the guy who released it. And it includes ties into a lot of things that you'd expect in the Book of Mormon. You know, there's this, the brother of Jared and all the other stories, the vision that he had that he was commanded not to write down. Those things are now found in here. So this is a fake writing. Somebody has a video recording of Chris Namelka admitting that he made this up. Uh, basically to disprove the church's own, um, you know, claims about that you couldn't make scripture in that mode. And what Bushman in defending, using the concept of pseudepigrapha, Joseph Smith's actions here, he's also defending 
what other con artists would do to try to gain followers. And Chris Namelka with the sealed portion was able to do that. There was a descendant of Hiram Smith um, who herself read this book, believed it was real and left the conventional Mormon church to follow this man. Other people have done the same. Um, and so that's where, you know, this justification of lying is, um, is problematic. But, you know, in the world of apologetics, if you're going to look at an excuse that you could give for something to defend some part of the church, don't forget to look and say, wait a second, if I can excuse this in the instance of the church, what else am I therefore compelled to excuse on the same principle? Um, and the only way you can really get around that is special pleading and say, well, we can excuse it in the church because it's the church, it's true, but we wouldn't excuse it in everybody else because they're not the church, they're not the true. Um, and just if everybody's going around doing that, you've got chaos. So, all right, so we are going to continue our analysis here without, um, I, well, actually, you know what? It's worth looking. So we spoke a moment ago, I mentioned the, um, while we're waiting for RFM to come back, I mentioned the children of God. And there's a documentary that was released on um, 2020 that's probably on my channel. It's got more views than anything else. And there's something very important because we've talked about how Oaks is setting out the case that you can remain silent or mislead or withhold information so that you're preserving something that is sacred or something that God has commanded you to preserve. And, and he'll go on to cite things like um, in the Book of Mormon, there are areas where prophets were commanded not to write everything that they had been told because they were too sacred. We frequently hear the general authorities saying that there are some things that are too sacred to talk about. And so this concept that sacredness is something that can be used as a justification for concealment is another one of these examples of problematic or, or worrisome justifications that then have other implications. So um, in this documentary, I'll bring it up on the screen here. Um, if we go to Chrome tab, Children of God, share audio. We've got uh, this expose where they went and rescued some children from this group called the Children of God. Um, a mother had escaped the group and had contacted some people to help her go and extract her children. And so now they're talking to the children, trying to basically deprogram them. And this is early in the profession of what was considered deprogramming uh, or deprocessing people who become trapped in cultic groups. And so there's probably some ethical problems with how they're doing this. They should have more mental health people involved in it. It should be part of a news expose, but we can learn from what was done at this time. One of the things that the group keeps very secret is that they have a secret religiously justified doctrine which justifies sex with children. And they are confronting the children with this to try to see the extent of the abuse, try to see how far the children are indoctrinated. And there's something about both how the father reacts as well as how the children react that's very informative. So let's take a look. So asked Richard about My Little Fish. That's the chapter in the cult publication which shows children in sexual poses with each other and with adults. It's just a, a piece of uh, educational material and we've learned many things through the years of child care, taking care of children. It's actually um, fun to watch a child in, in, in this case experience life. 
Dr. Margaret Singer is a psychologist and cult expert. How does that strike you as a statement from a father? What he was saying, experience live shows a mother orally copulating a little boy. And um, that's his opinion about what would uh, usually in the United States be regarded as sexual abuse of a child. Richard says there's never been any sexual abuse of children in his home. It's something that we forbid in our homes. It's something that has never been practiced nor advocated. And I stand here before you telling the truth. So I want to pause at this moment and just say what they've done in this group is they've deconstructed child abuse. They've said, okay, well, what really is child abuse? Then they've come up with a definition of what they are doing, which everybody in the wide world would see as child abuse. And they've carved that out and they've said, now they can say to themselves, we don't do child abuse. But what we have is this secret little fishy doctrine. And so now we're going to hold that private definition of what we do in secret and publicly to the world deny it. Now that's the same rhetorical mechanism that you're using that Oaks lays out on the justification for lying. But what it does is it empowers people to redefine things so that they can continue to engage in these uh, heinous acts. But now we're going to see where they confront the children with these teachings. Now remember the children have been completely immersed and are themselves victim victims of this um, immoral doctrine that has that they were inculcated in because of the abuse of the people who held them. But they've been inculcated in a way that they were taught and normalized that behavior. And they were also taught that this is a secret and sacred part of our religious practice that the wider world should have no part of and shouldn't know about. And you can see how strong that indoctrination is by how the children react. So let's take a look. The children do say they've never had any sexual experiences with adults or other children, but they become extremely agitated when we ask them about Moses David Berg's teachings on sex. My Little Fish. Now, your father described that as a routine publication. And that entails uh, graphic Who sex. Who had this? They're not having sex. They're just kissing and hugging in bed. That's not sex. April is very upset that 2020 has obtained a copy of My Little Fish. Ex-members tell us the cult leaders say it should be kept secret. If you show it to other people, they don't understand. That stuff's not supposed to be publicized. So many people hate, so many people think sex is wrong. So many people hate us. But we're just telling them the truth. We're just telling them it's not wrong. We're just telling them that there's nothing wrong with them. And here comes these publicizers throwing them to everybody, making everybody think it's wrong. This is printed and circulated, though. But why do you it's need it? You don't need it. It's not a private doc. It's printed and widely circulated around the world. You're not supposed to have it. Like what exactly will it take? Okay, so there... The, you can see there that they've been indoctrinated with the idea that this secret doctrine which justifies this practice is something that the outside world doesn't understand. It's something that is sacred and so should be kept secret. And that theme then justifies lying. We saw the parents, the father, lie. and But in his head, he doesn't see it's a lie because they've redefined, deconstructed, and rebuilt the whole concept to be something other than a lie. Define the wider objective reality that everybody else accepts that that is wrong. But he can sleep peacefully at night because they've redefined abuse to be something you know, so tightly encapsulated that what they're doing is not considered abuse. So 
when we put forth that we can use sacredness or secretness to justify lies, this is the type of thing that it empowers. We would not believe it's justified in this instance. We would not believe it's justified in Warren Jeffs saying, well, the things that we do in the temple, the, the marriages that we have with children, the exploitation and abuse that the wider world would say we have with children is really something sacred and special for God's children. We wouldn't excuse that. And by the same time, go back in time to Joseph Smith's era and the things that he were doing, he was doing, kept secret by lies, justified by the sacredness of it is wrong. If you're going to join a religious group and they've got secret doctrine that they don't tell you when you're joining, that is a problem. The wider world of conventional religion doesn't have secret doctrine if they are an ethical group that you can't know about when you're joining the religion. We're starting to see the Mormon church become a little bit more upfront by revealing more of what goes on in the temple to people as they join because this shroud of secrecy is around it historically. Um, but that, that's a big problem. All right, so <clears throat> what we'll do is go ahead and close that out as we wait for RFM to return. I may have to just proceed with our textual analysis to the extent that I can. Um, I should have had him join by phone. Let me just, uh, okay, so we're gonna go to stop screen share and we'll go to our text folks online. Okay, let me just text the old RFM and say that. Okay. Actually, you know what I can do? As I can. Talk amongst yourselves. Uh, I can't think of any internally contradictory thing that I could bring to bear. Hey, you can open that link up on your phone and join from your phone if you'd like. Yeah, just on your phone, on your phone, click on that link if you open up the Facebook app that I sent you the link on and it'll it'll log you in there. If you want to give that a try. In the meantime, I'm filling up the dead air. I'm just I'm not as I'm not as slick and suave as you are, you know. So Give it a try. I'll talk to you later. Okay, so while he's doing that, okay, let's go on to some comments. Moonman55 says, informed consent is really important as well when you're asking people to make such a commitment as 10% tithe, donating amount of time and resources the church asks. This is actually hitting the news headlines right now because we have uh, one of the Huntsman uh, kiddos, who's a grown adult, but uh, heir to the Huntsman empire, has left the church and is now filing suit against the church saying that the church described what they were going to do with tithing funds in one way. And then when they started buying and building billion dollar malls, uh, kind of laundering the tithing money so that they could employ it in that uh, building, that they were misrepresenting what they were doing. And so it was not, they did not pay tithing under an arrangement of informed consent. 
And so we're going to see how the courts handle that idea. Um, there's some plausible deniability the church has built into even the change of the tithing slips, where now you, you they say, you know, you can designate tithing and missionary fund if you read the tithing slip, but it says we're free to do with it whatever we can. So what that empowers the church to do is that they can never pin down one dollar and say, well, that particular dollar was tithing. It all goes into what I call Schrodinger's box of tithing, where there's money in there, and some of it is tithing and some of it is not. And based on what you want to spend it on, you can call it tithing. So when you dip your hand in to spend it on the mall, you say that's not tithing. But when you dip your hand in to spend it on church buildings, then you say, okay, well, that's tithing. And it's only when the application of it happens that you designate what the tithing is. And that's, that's a problem. All right. Hey, what's up? Hey, only one problem. That's a great idea, except my, my iPhone microphone doesn't work. <laughs> you're killing me, Smalls. Okay, you're almost there. All right, very good. Without me? No, I'm, we're doing fine, right? We're doing fine, right? Okay, I'll see you in a, I'll see you in a bit. I've got a few more comments I want to make, and I'm sure that you are doing great. Are you still live? Yeah, I'm still live. Is, Am I on speakerphone? Yeah, sort of. I, they can't hear you. <laughs> All right. I should be with you in a matter of days. Okay, so see you then. Okay, All right, well, this has been an interlude. If you'd like to go take a potty break, that would be great. Okay, so um, <clears throat> let's go back and see uh, while we're doing. So, uh, all right, well, let's cover a little bit of the lies that we can see. So when we think about instances where the church has lied, there are some things that don't fit into some of the ambiguities that we've been talking about. So one of my favorite examples that kind of just blew me away because, you know, you look for things where eh, maybe you can reinterpret a statement one way and it doesn't really represent it. But there's some examples that are just complete bald-faced lies that, uh, when you see the church engage in it and the apostles, the ones who you revere as the conveyors of truth engaging in it, it just defies all uh, comprehension. So this is a publication from 1851 that you can find on the BYU website. And it is a bunch of pamphlets published by Orson Pratt of um, different debates that they had with people who were criticizing Mormonism in England. And one of the criticisms was, hey, you know, we've heard that those uh, Mormons practice polygamy. They're, they've, you know, they're doing some kind of crazy marriage thing. And so this is now John Taylor, Apostle John Taylor, future prophet John Taylor in 1951. Or excuse me, in, um, this is published in 1951, but this is happening during their mission in the 1940s during the lifetime of Joseph Smith. So in the 1940s, um, hold on, I have to get my timeline straight. This is John Taylor, 1950s, in Europe, debating someone. Now remember, polygamy was not made public over the pulpit until 1952, until 1852. So he is already a secret polygamist. He is acknowledged by the church to have been practicing polygamy during the lifetime of Joseph Smith. That's the 1840s. So he's now been a polygamist for over a decade or almost a decade. And this is what his response is to reverends in Europe saying, well, the church is doing the secret polygamy thing because we've read the publications of John C. Bennett. 
And so John Taylor says, these things are too outrageous to admit of belief. Therefore, leaving the sisters of the white veil, the black veil, and all other veils with those gentlemen to dispose of, together with their authors, he's referring to John C. Bennett and his expose, as they think best, I shall content myself by reading our views of chastity and marriage from a work published by us, containing some of the articles of our faith. The Doctrine and Covenants, page 330. He's referring now to the earliest forms of the Doctrine and Covenants, where if you go to section 101, there's a statement that says, you know, we've been accused of polygamy, but this is our official position on marriage. And it says, according to the custom of all civilized nations, marriage is regulated by laws and ceremonies. Therefore, we believe all marriages in this Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints should be solemnized in a public meeting or feast. Prepared for that purpose, the solemnization should be performed by a presiding high priest, yada, 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 not preventing those who are desirous to be married of getting married by other authority. We believe that it is not right to prohibit members of the church from marrying out of the church, if it be their determination to do so, but such persons will be considered weak in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Marriage should be celebrated with prayer and thanksgiving and at solemnization. And uh, hold on. And then we go down, down. He talks about the marriage ceremony and then legal contracts. And then uh, inasmuch as this church of Jesus Christ had been reproached with the prime of formication, polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, except in case of death, where either is at liberty to marry again. And so he's he's opened up the doctrine of covenants. He's cited the scripture in it in 1851, Joseph Smith has been dead now for six years or so, and the, the church has not come public about the reality of the secret practice of polygamy. He's now refuted the people who are criticizing the church by referring to scripture and then published this widely in 1851 so that other people would join the church under the false understanding that the church does not practice polygamy. They get on a boat, they go all the way to America, they travel all the way across the American frontier to get to Utah, and lo and behold, there's polygamy. And what are they going to do now that they're on the other side of the world? You know, if you look at the story of Martha Brotherton, her whole trauma was in realizing that the representations of the brethren that they um, were not practicing polygamy, e even in the Nauvoo era, was that now, you know, they're on the other side of the, the world. It's even worse when they get to Utah. So um, this is an example to me of a bald-faced lie that an apostle was giving. And again, the rationales that we're going to see Elder Oaks gives are the same rationales that are applied at this time. They're defending a higher principle. They're defending the kingdom of God, the work that's going to come forth. They are not seeing themselves as doing a lie. They're being silent for a season so that the, the truth will come out later. And then it's not a lie. It's just they were commanded to keep certain secret doctrines, sacred doctrines, secret. But that, that's not a lie because they've now called it something other than a lie. Okay. <clears throat> um. Let's go ahead and stop that screen share. Let's see if there's anything else worth. I don't know what's taking this clown to, uh, longer. I, if I don't know if you guys realized it, but RFM was wearing his merch. He was wearing a T-shirt, uh, thereby uh, fulfilling one part of the midlife crisis. You know, he's got to dress younger than he actually is. We're just waiting for a little ponytail to pop up on the back. And for him to buy a highfalutin sports car with all that donated money that he keeps shilling for at the end of every show. Um, <clears throat> all right, what else do we have that would be interesting to go into? Um, 
it was something that I posted on the web on the YouTube channel uh, last night that I think is useful in understanding another facet of how the brethren believe that they can get away with what they get away with and still see themselves as doing God's work. And that is that when they become apostles, they learn what it means to be an apostle by um, learning how the other apostles conceptualize things. And he describes how early on in his uh, career as an apostle, he didn't understand how to feel and act in a way that was conveying God uh, as um, you know, what was going on. And so he gives this story of how he was to understand it, and it's very telling. So let's take a look here. And I was assigned to the missionary council, and the chairman was Elder Packer, and Elder McConkie and Elder Faust were the other two members. And so I was the junior in that situation, and Elder McConkie took me as a younger brother to teach me how to assign missionaries. And so I asked him through, after three or four weeks, Elder McConkie, how do you know where to send them? And he said, you're the servant of the Lord, and your action is the Lord's action. You study it out in your mind, and you assign them, and they're assigned by the Lord. Okay, that concept right there is a big problem because what it's saying is that these brethren, when they get to this position, they are empowered to see any of the things that they do as God's acts. And so whenever we hear Oaks say that if they are duty bound by covenant or by something that's sacred or secret, any justification that pops into their head over why they may be uh, justified in telling a lie is now God communicating to them and they're acting through and in God's name. It's a big problem. But Check out that video, put some comments on it. In the meantime, we have got RFM back. How are you doing? That was quite a journey. Did you miss me? Uh, we did. You want to, is your mic the correct <laughs> mic? Just double check that. I okay, did so. actually, even before I okay. came in. Does it sound okay? Uh, yeah, it does. Okay, so I'm going to hit share screen. I'm going to bring back our notes on, or our Elder Oaks online. We filled the time appropriately and we want to make sure we get to the end of this. We've got 25 minutes left, so. Yes. It was actually the wrong mic. Now it's the right mic. Excellent. All right. So we've gotten to the part where he's invoked Hugh Nibley, and then he talked about um, uh, pseudepigrapha, and pseudepigrapha is wrong and bad and not justified. And then he talks about parts of Mormon history where people might, mm, there may have been some lies going on. What do, what do you think of that part? Oh, he says there definitely were lies going on, especially around the issue of polygamy. And the funny thing is, well, first off, funny thing is that here's an apostle of the Lord invoking Hugh Nibley as authority. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, wait, repeatedly. hold on a second. There, you're right. Why wouldn't he invoke himself or why is he invoking a, a lesser authority to justify something from an apostolic seat? But uh, I, Yes, and, he, and he's quoting from non-apostolic people. Yeah, so Catholics, like, St. Augustine. The church, the church fathers for crying out loud. And when he quotes them to one effect, then that's good. And when he quotes him to another effect, then it's bad. But he's still quoting yeah. from church fathers. So I think this is a display of Elder Oak's erudition more than it is an appeal to authority on his part. However, when he talks about the, the polygamy, and you already talked about that, right, while I was gone? A little bit. 
Yeah. Okay. So if you get to uh, wherever it is, because I have a different printout of what sure. you have, but um, he talks about the different polygamy that was going on. The post-manifesto polygamy he actually gives a nod to where he starts off yeah. saying, it is also clear that polygamy did not end suddenly with the 1890 manifesto. Yeah. Polygamous relationships sealed before that revelation was announced continued for a generation. Wow. Yeah. Now he's actually going to do something interesting here. Uh, the performance of polygamous marriages also continued for a time outside the United States, right? Mm -hmm. So it's outside the jurisdiction, you know, it's not Mexico, the, Canada, right? Uh, a boat off the shore of California. But notice what he does here. It's, I keep saying that because it's really funny. Uh, the performance of polygamous marriages also continued for a time outside the United States where the application of the manifesto was uncertain for a season, right? Well, it's uncertain. Mm -hmm. For a season, by the way. Uh, it appears, now notice this line. It appears that polygamous marriages also continued for about a decade in some other areas among leaders and members who took license from the ambiguity, ambiguities and pressures created by this high-level collision between resented laws and revered doctrines. Well, he, he throws in a lot of verbiage after the critical part yeah. where he says, in some other areas. Well, he's already talked about outside the United States. So what, what on earth can in some other areas mean, Jonathan? Uh, Salt Lake City, uh, Arizona. Uh... It's in the United States. Anywhere, yes. It's in the United States. He cannot bring himself to say that because he's just said, well, outside the United States, the the, the manifesto, its application was uncertain, right? But yeah. it also occurred in some other areas for like a decade. Now, this is fascinating to me because he's talking about the United States. He knows he's talking about the United States, but he's not going to say the United States. Instead, he's going to say in some other areas, which means that what he's doing in a talk devoted to the idea of how deception is a bad thing. He's actually going to be deceiving his audience. Maybe this is like uh, a case in point, a case study for the members of the audience. If they catch this and they realize what he's doing, then they'll understand exactly what his point really is. So I thought that was an interesting thing. Um, oh, and here's something. Oh, we, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, I was just moving on to the next part where he's talking about how he examines the lies and misstatements and ways, you know, the consequences of it and sees that there were some difficult choices being made, but he's not there, going to judge them. There are. And so when you get down to this line here, basically he says what lies about polygamy, they were wrong, wrong, wrong. I don't care who did them. I don't care the reason for them. They were wrong, wrong, wrong. But now uh, if you go back, you just went past it. Yep. Where he says, my heart goes, my heart goes out to the church leaders who were squeezed between their devotion to truth and their devotion to the wives and children. So after condemning it and saying there's no justification for lying about polygamy, he's now going to actually backtrack on that a bit and provide justifications for it because they were squeezed. They had this yeah. horrible choice they had to make to, to rat out their dad and get him sent to federal prison. And now there's no dad in the home. There's no food on the table. The kids are starving. They're saying, mommy, why did you rat out dad? Yeah. That's a horrible thing. And it is, it's a conflict. But after, after being absolutely unequivocal in condemning it, now he's going to justify it. And that's that phrase right there where you've got your cursor. To tell the truth could mean to betray a confidence or a cause or to send a brother to prison. Now, the brother to prison is clearly, but the thing where he's tipping his hand is to tell the truth could mean to betray a confidence or a cause. If you are betraying a confidence or a cause by telling the truth, then you don't have to tell the truth. 
You can actually lie in that circumstance. And that covers a lot of ground. By the way, betraying a confidence is what Steve Benson did. Yeah. Okay. I want to correct you, though, because I think the whole point of this talk is to invert that relationship and say that if you are, if the truth would betray a, a confidence or a cause, then doing anything other than truth is no longer considered a lie. We're going to give it a different name. And so we can continue to say that we don't lie. But and then he'll say, you know, some of those things that could be, you know, silence for a season or compelled silence or somebody else's responsibility. So it's not a lie, even though the wider world would see it as a lie. Right. And it's to be, I think that's great what you, what you just said, but it's also to betray confidence or a cause. Yeah. Brethren, shall we not go forward in such a cause? Yeah. That is the, the cause of the. Of the whole kingdom of God, the whole project of the church is the greatest cause. Yes. And, and so that can be then be used as a justification for withholding truth, for using, for deceiving, which is using truth to perpetuate what would otherwise be a lie. Right. Um, it's okay to lie if you're going to be betraying a confidence or if you're going to be betraying a cause. And boy, can that take in a lot of, a lot of ground. And so now he's got, this is probably the strongest statement that he makes against lying, but he's very carefully using the word lying. And he's got to focus on that lying, lying, lying is bad, 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 because the rest of the talk is devoted to how are we going to call what is essentially lying something other than lying so we can be justified. Does this mean we condone deliberate and important misrepresentations of fact in a circumstance in which they are clearly intended to be believed and relied upon? Never. Lying is sinful as it always has been. There is no exempt category for so-called lying for the Lord. Lying is simply outside the range of permitted or condoned conduct by Latter-day Saint members or leaders. It sounds pretty, uh, pretty straightforward, doesn't it? It, it should, but like all legalistic and lawyerly things, the devil is in the details. Yep. And if it actually meant what it, what it says and what it's meant to be understood is saying that he wouldn't be acting this way, he would be in uh, the next month in the pages of the Salt Lake Tribune. Yeah. Okay. So then he goes on about uh, something a little bit more specific. He uses some examples from modern church history. Some of those who have commented on the alleged lies told in connection with polygamy have failed to distinguish between the wrongfulness of asserting something that is untrue and, and a clear misrepresentation. You're saying something is factually untrue and the very different circumstance of not telling everything one knows. I wish to comment on that distinction because it's an important one for the legal profession and indeed for all participants in commerce and public affairs. So he's saying that this idea now is not only important in law, but in everyday public life. And that is the distinction between saying something that is objectively false and not saying things that are true, remaining silent or somehow other dissembling the truth. Can I just tell you something that that makes sense on its face? It's not how he means it. And I'll get to that in a second. But it's a different thing to say something. And when you speak, you speak the truth. And it's totally acceptable that, you know, if you don't say something, then you're not lying. Not saying something is not lying. Right? right. Okay. At least in most circumstances. Now, the problem is, is that he's not actually talking about being silent like I was for like 20 minutes there when my computer yeah. was rebooting, okay? Except for the swearing that was occurring on this end. What he's saying is not to tell everything you know while you're right. telling it. 
And the reason I say that is not only because what he, what he did with Steve Benson, but what he just did before with in other areas. He wasn't being silent. He was talking and filling in words, but he used different words to cover what he was being silent about, which was that it was in the United States. And he yeah. did that in order to give a false, a false impression. impression. Yeah. Yes. And that's where I think it's important now when you when you call people out on this, there's a distinction between you're lying, meaning that you're misrepresenting something factually or, or saying something that is objectively not true and you are a deceiver or you're deceiving where you may be saying all true things, but you're conveying a false impression by selectively leaving information out. And he's taking this concept of silence and saying that we can now f use that concept of remaining silent to justify selectively leaving information out. And that's at the root of this whole justification. I think that's an excellent point. And can I add that from my point of view, that kind of prevarication, that kind of equivocation that he's advocating is actually much worse than just lying. It also takes a great deal more intelligence, a great deal more creativity yeah. and thinking in order to do what it is that he does so well and what he's describing here. It's, it's one thing for me to say, look, uh, I'm 29 years old. Okay, duh, that's a lie. That doesn't take a whole lot of creativity or thought. Um, all it takes is, is a certain amount of chutzpah. But for me to come up with a paragraph of language and verbiage that's meant to convey the fact that I'm, what did I say, 39? 29. Did I say 29? Okay, regardless. Um, You're wearing a t-shirt like a 29-year-old. Hey, this is my Don Johnson look. Let me pull up the sleeves here. By the way, can you see what's on my t-shirt? I hope so. Yes, I already invoked your did merch, you? my man. I did. Okay, thank you. And I just got, they they right. need to know where to go to get it, though. Oh, uh, teesprings.com, or it's teespring singular. Uh, well, well, I think search. It's one search of those. Radio Free Mormon there. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. And you come up with all sorts of great merchandise. But, but, yeah, for me to come up with a paragraph to give you the impression that I'm saying that I'm 29 years old when I'm not actually saying it, that requires a lot more artistry, a lot more work and, and devotion. And a law degree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I want to I want to make sure we get through this. So let's move on, because yeah. after he's laid this principle down, he's now going to use scripture, indeed, invoke the name of Christ to justify his ethic on what is essentially lying here. And he's yes. going to say, well, re remember, Christ said that you don't cast pearls before swine. Ergo, justify selective silence to misrepresent things. And then he says, you know, there's been a lot of examples in the scriptures where the Lord commanded prophets not to write those sacred things, therefore justify concealing, keeping things out of the public view, not responding to things, misrepresenting things. And then the scriptural injunctions establish that the obligation to tell the truth does not require one to tell everything she knows in all circumstances. And then this is where he first invokes the positive duty. Indeed, we have a positive duty to keep many things secret or confidential. Now there's two different positive duties he invokes in this talk. He talks about there are instances where you have a positive duty to disclose, where you are obligated to disclose. And then there are positive duties where you're obligated to keep things secret or confidential. And the we'll get into what things may obligate you, hint, hint, things that are sacred or taken by covenant or commanded, who do you get commanded by? By God, who conveys those commandments? The prophet of the church. And so, you know, the, all those are justifications where your positive duty to remain silent now trumps any other consideration. 
And then this is the this is to me the golden line. Uh, when truth is constrained by other obligations, the outcome is not falsehood, but silence for a season. What do you think of that? I think that that is a golden line because what he's what he's saying is when the truth is constrained by other obligations, i.e., when he gives a misleading statement that he can defend, right? Mm -hmm. When the truth is constrained by other obligations, the outcome is not falsehood. Let's stop right there. Let's put a period after that. He yep. has now defined falsehood as being something that is such a blatant lie that it can't be defended. Mm -hmm. But if you use language like he did with these other statements uh, in the um, the whole grizzly bear fiasco, that he said, I could defend those, so those were okay to go out, even though they obviously gave false impressions, um, then it's good. It's not falsehood. It's just silence for a season. Yeah. And that season can, it's like winter is coming. Yeah. I mean, how well, long I mean, is that season going to be? We're in the last dispensation. That's a season, right? Until Christ returns again. I mean, the church could thereby lie about anything, conceal anything, and then just say, well, the, the last dispensation is a season. So we're just being silent for a season. You know, you could justify this to conceal their billions of dollars or whatever. We're just being silent for a season. Right. And that's why I think it's it's more accurate and easier just to call it deception rather than lying because what I he's agree. justifying is deception. And now he's going to quote Hugh Nibley uh, to Quoting that St. Augustine. Yes. He's going to say, this is where it's permitted to deceive, not yes. to lie, but just to deceive. It's permitted for the purpose of building up religion and things pertaining to piety when necessary to conceal whatever appears to need concealing, but it is not permitted to lie. And of course, so one may not conceal by way of lying. And he says, I think it'd be clearer if he had said one may not lie by concealing. Again, this is just as long as you can slap the name something else other than lie onto whatever deception you're doing, then it's okay. Can we stop there for a second? Because this is sure. also very important, which is occurring to me now. When he says, I believe that statement, this is uh, Elder Oaks parenthetically. I believe that statement of St. Augustine, who was just quoted, would have been clearer if he had said, so one may not lie by concealing. The first thing is, that's not clear. That's actually not what he said. What St. Augustine says is, it is not permitted to lie, of course, and so one may not conceal by way of lying. What he's saying is, you don't get to lie in order to conceal. Hmm. What he, what Elder Oaks is reinterpreting that is, and it's important enough that he's going to correct St. Augustine. It would be clear if he had said, so one may not lie by concealing. That is a very important statement because what he's just said is, if I conceal, I'm not lying. Oh, I see. Well, that's interesting. It's yes. not a prohibition. It's a definition. Right. Is that in the those rules for George Costanza? It's a not I, a lie. I don't know. I'd have... It's not a lie if you're just concealing it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, then he talks about something the church is actually quite uh, guilty of. In, in a quoted document, to omit parts of the quote without noting the omission is to perpetrate a lie. Earlier standards of authorship may not have required this, as the above quote suggests, but it's a standard is clear today. And what's funny is that that's not actually true because you can go to the um, lesson manuals of the church where they talk about tithing. You know, you have to pay tithing. Uh, and then there's there's dot, 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 you know, and then people have gone to say, what well, what is in that dot, dot, dot? And they go and they find the original quote. It's like you pay tithing after you've met all of your needs. Then you pay tithing and the church just leaves that out. But there, even though they put the ellipsis in there, it's conveyed a false 
impression and it's an essential lie because that's what people have acted on uh, on that it misrepresented the intent because the dot 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 completely inverted and changed the the statement itself right but there you're only concealing you see mm. you're still noting the omission by the ellipses and therefore once again not a lie yes not lying by concealing Okay, now this is where we get into the strength of the duty to reveal. In contrast, when there is no duty to reveal all, and when one has not made an affirmative statement implying that all has been revealed, it is simply incorrect to equate silence with lying. This is so powerful because what he's saying is that if you're talking, if you've asked a question of the brethren, they first of all have no duty to reveal all. They have no duty to the truth because their client is the church, not you as a member. And second, if you don't get them to say, I have said everything, then, you know, you can never accuse them of lying because they'll just say, you know, well, I didn't say I said everything. I didn't say I wasn't concealing anything. Right, right. So there's no duty to reveal all when one has not made an affirmative statement implying that all has been revealed. Now, the problem here is that that's exactly what he did with the statements he left in the public. Uh, yeah. What was it? That article with the Arizona yeah. Republic. And we went over those before. He definitely made that's an affirmative statement. Yeah, and that's the one he got, took out. But the other ones say, I don't know anything more about it. He left that in. He talks about these other things. Uh, and I think that you're right. That's where he took that out because he says, if one does not make an affirmative statement implying that all has been revealed, then it is simply incorrect to equate silence with lying. You know, it's so weird that he's giving this talk September 12, 1993. And it's almost a playbook for how it is he's going to conduct himself the following month when that scandal breaks open. Yeah. Okay, so the next justification slash rationalization he gives is one that I've already showed the video that's the example of it, but uh, he talks about Nibley saying, there's a sound pedagogical principle here. The teaching of all doctrines, says Peter, has a certain order. There are some things which must be delivered first, second, others in third, and so all in their order. If these things are delivered in their order, they become plain, but if they're brought forward out of order, it will seem to be spoken against reason. So what he's saying basically is that sometimes you have to remain silent, i.e. conceal, i.e. misrepresent things, because it's not the right time for it to come forth something else has to happen in order for it to come forth. And usually this falls under the header of sacred truth. So in Mormonism, we have the sacred slash secret doctrine of polygamy that was concealed and it could have been concealed with this justification. Well, it's not supposed to come out yet. You know, you have to talk about these things in order. Right, and once again, the power is put in the person who holds the information to make that determination without telling you what's going on. If I don't think you're ready, or if I think you're not ready to hear, what it is that I hold in my possession, in my mind, this information, then I am justified in not imparting it to you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that paternalistic mode where in informed consent, you have to give all the information that a person may need to make an informed decision. In this paternalistic mode, you determine what information the people need in order to make the decision that you want them to make. And in doing so, you are manipulating them because you're concealing truths, presenting partial truths in order to have them make a decision with partial information. And he seals the deal on that by saying there are many sacred things that we do not discuss. And while you were gone, we talk about the danger of allowing religious groups to say that sacredness is a justification for keeping things secret because that gives a broad shield for groups to employ dangerous, abusive, illegal activities under the heading of sacredness.
And yeah, even then you have that. And even then you have the classic uh, redefinition that all Mormons know so well when they talk about uh, things that are secret. Well, they're not secret. They're sacred. Yeah. And, and we've already seen that the church has gone so far. The sacred heading can be tied to anything. Sacred funds. So now sacred funds, we've justified keeping what we do with them secret because they're sacred. I mean, anything that they need to justify, they can just it's the sacred name of the church. Now we can conceal things because we're defending the sacred name of the church. He that then goes a, on. That's such an excellent point you just make because that had not occurred to me before. And it does seem uh, amazing that in a Christian church based upon the Christ of the New Testament, that it would talk about money as being sacred. All right, so he then goes on and gives some examples that I think are actually just piss poor examples of uh, the examples where past people have had knowledge conveyed to them by God about some calling they were gonna receive, but they remained silent until after it was happening. And that it's just, people can make that stuff up after the fact and it would be seen the same way. It's just kind of weak ass to me. I like the one you says, highlighted here. Yeah, there are things we simply should not discuss or reveal. Sometimes we are silent out of loyalty to those we love. Sometimes we are silent because the Lord has confided in us, and we know we are not appointed to be the means of disseminating the knowledge to others. Sometimes there are other reasons. So what we've got here is now a whole slew of justifications for essentially lying or misrepresenting things. You know, if, if somebody else is supposed to be the one that's telling it, then I'm not going to tell it. I'm going to lie, essentially, or not tell when I should be. Um, and then if the Lord is confided in us, if something is under the heading of a sacred covenant or a commandment that a prophet has told us that we have to keep something secret and that's from God because it's the prophet, well then all these things justify it. So anything that the brethren do can be justified. And sometimes the first one, sometimes we are silent out of loyalty to those we love, including Elder Packer. Yeah. Okay. And finally, that last line that's amazing, as if the, the examples he gives aren't bad enough, now he gives the laundry list at the end. Yeah. There, there's an infinite number of unspecified, or presumably infinite number of unspecified reasons where he says sometimes there are other reasons. The you exceptions. Could almost, you almost play the, the organ music, the creepy organ music when he says that. Sometimes there are other reasons. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so then he goes into... Um, he uses the example that God told Joseph after the loss of the 115 pages, listen, for the rest of the time you translate it all, don't show the world until it's all done. Well, now we can use that to justify keeping things secret mm -hmm. until the right time. You silence for a season. It's not lies, it's silence for a season. He's been giving this, uh, this matter a lot of thought, hasn't he, Jonathan? He really has. There are so many justifications here. Here we see that although a man is, is not justifying in lying to detect a liar, he is justified, indeed commanded, to withhold things from the world in order to preserve himself and safeguard the work in which he is involved. That is so all-encompassing because everything the brethren do is regarding the work in which they are involved. And so they're justified now in withholding information for those purposes under that heading. We must not lie, but we are free to tell less than we know when we have no duty to disclose. Well, I hate to break it to you, but as an ecclesiastical leader, dealing with people who are devoting their lives, their energy, their time, their money to you, you have a duty to be completely forthright and honest about the things that affect their decision to go into that. That is an ecclesiastical duty that you have, even though you are 
pushing that duty as far away from you as possible because there's no professional licensing that requires it for which there are consequences like there are in the legal profession. You know, Jonathan, I actually think you have cracked the code on this entire talk. And it's occurred to me as you've been talking that yes, over and over and over, when you understand what he means by his words, that lying is uh, saying something that's black and white, uh, false and cannot be defended versus saying other things, but not saying everything you know in order to give a false impression that's not lying, then over and over and over again in this talk, he says what it is that he's actually meaning his real code. In other words, by that I mean a credo. In other words, we must not lie, but we are free to tell less than we know, i.e. be deceptive, when we have no duty to disclose. Yeah. And, and that thing where you set up that there's a duty to disclose and only in the constrained situation where there's a duty to disclose, then you have to tell the truth. But in any other decision, it's up to you. You don't have to, you, may, you do, you don't, it's, it's no big deal. So now he goes into this whole thing because he's dealing with lawyers. So there's this thing when you take your oath, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, two of those are fine to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. Okay, that's fine. But the whole truth, now that's a problem because that directly assaults his justification up to this point of remaining silent for a season. Because if you're selectively leaving information out, you're not telling the whole truth. So he's got to now deconstruct this concept of the whole truth and turn it into something else so he can still continue to do what he wants to do. And how does he do that? Well, he says, in contrast to the obligation to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, the obligation to tell the whole truth is subject to an important qualification. In judicial proceeding, the sworn duty to tell the whole truth is confined to matters relevant to the proceeding. It does not extend to other subjects. The duty to tell the whole truth is also limited by special legal protections, such as the privilege against self-incrimination. And so when you're representing the church and the whole truth would incriminate the church and its leaders, well, suddenly you don't have to tell the whole truth. That's and also, great. And also he's talking about relevant to the proceedings. This one is important because now he's talking about uh, a court of law. And yeah, in order for evidence to be admissible, whether it's testimonial or otherwise, it has to be deemed to be relevant. The deal is, though that you've got two attorneys involved or more, at least two, and you've got a judge and the judge is the one who's making the determination as to whether something's relevant if an objection is raised on that basis. What he is saying is, I am the one who holds the information. I get to determine whether the information that I know is relevant. And if I determine it's not relevant, then I don't have to tell it to you. He places himself in the position of the judge, the person who would determine if it was relevant or not. And that gives him all the power to conceal with any of the myriad of justifications that he's given in this talk and to sleep well at night, believing that he has not told a lie. He has not, you know, falsely represented things. Yeah. And unfortunately, the members of the church are relegated to the position of the jury. In the matter of lying, the essential question is not whether we have a duty to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. We clearly have the duty. We must not lie. I know of no category of justified lies. Except for all the categories I've just enumerated. Right. But remember, we don't call those lies. Those are silence for a season or, you know, not having a duty to disclose everything. Those aren't lies. It's not a lie if you believe it. The difficult question is we are morally responsible as to whether we are morally responsible to tell the whole truth. So what he's saying is that as church leaders, we're not morally responsible to tell the whole truth in some situations. And these are those situations where there is no duty to disclose. We have two alternatives. We could disclose if we choose, 
But there will be circumstances where commandments, covenants, or professional obligations require us to remain silent. Professional obligations, he's already, you know, it's clear. These are lawyers. There's such a thing as attorney-client privilege where you do have an obligation to keep something secret. But he's including these religious themes, commandments and covenants now under the same category as justified reasons to misrepresent things by leaving out the whole truth, saying these are situations where you don't have to tell the whole truth. But that doesn't mean you're lying. It means that you're being silent for a season about some things. Partial truth. Now, this is where I think we, we read a little bit of his own ego getting hurt and him trying to lick his wounds a little bit. There are a lot of situations where some people are charged with lying, where the charge is not well-founded. Like, kind of like, like when I'm accused of lying. Yes. You will read that kind of charge in the literature and in the current commentary as if a person were under duty to tell everything he or she knew irrespective of other duties or obligations. So what he's saying is we can never accuse Oaks of lying because he's got duties and obligations that are secret and sacred that compel him not to tell the whole truth. And that's not a lie. It's just silence for a season. Can I ask you something? What yeah. literature and current commentary is he talking about? You will read that kind of charge about somebody lying in the literature. What, the literature? What is he talking about? And in current commentary? I, As think if he, a, you, what? I think you could just look at, you know, the Tanners were active then. They were publishing stuff left and right, saying the leaders are lying about church history and they're misrepresenting facts, you know, this is 1993, and this could apply to that. He's like, well, hold on. As the church, we're not obligated to tell the whole truth. Right, and then he justifies it to say, as if a person were under a duty to tell everything he or yeah. she knew, irrespective of any other duties or obligations, yeah. like the duties and obligations I have to the LDS church. Exactly. Now, he invokes something in these final paragraphs that I think is important to understand, because he's telling these young lawyers that they're going to have to really reconceptualize, deconstruct and reconstructualize honesty, lying and the truth. He says, be prepared for circumstances that may be painful and contrary to your personal interest and comfort, where you must keep confidences, even if someone calls you a liar. It requires a sophisticated analysis of the circumstances and a finely tuned conscience to distinguish between the situation where you are obliged by duty to speak and where you are obliged by duty, commandment, or covenant to remain silent. That finely tuned conscience that is the bending of the soul, the bending of the mind, the distortion of your moral compass that you have to do in order to sleep well at night and still prevaricate on these things. He's laid out in this talk all of the different ways that he massages his conscience to sleep well at night. And it's, that's what that strikes me. Along the same lines, that first line in the, the sentence, I find it makes me uncomfortable. When he says, I urge you who are lawyers and lawyers in preparation to be sophisticated yeah. as you think about these subjects. Now, why do you have to be sophisticated when you're thinking about telling the truth or keeping confidences? You know, yep. you keep a confidence or you tell the truth, but you don't have to be particularly sophisticated. And I think that sophistication is a euphemism for something else, just like finely tuned conscience. He yeah. sound, he's making it sound like, oh, this is a much more conscientious conscience because it's so finely tuned when actually I think he means the opposite. But, and I will tell you as a lawyer, okay, there are no circumstances where uh, I, let me see here. He says, be also, but also be prepared for circumstances that may be painful and contrary to your personal interest and comfort where you must keep confidences, even if someone calls you a liar. 
I have never in my life had someone call me a liar because I'm keeping a confidence. Well, um, I, I, I have to cut it uh, short because I got to yes. go on to other obligations, but I want to make sure that we at least close on, uh, right. we want to we go full circle on this because we've seen Costanza's rules and now we need to see Oak's rules online. And so yeah. <laughs> we've got now in the same mode as our prior one. Hold on. Let me see where we got. Here we are. You're brilliant. Dallin H. Oaks rules online. It's not a lie if you are silent for a season. It's not a lie if you can rationalize it. It's not a lie if it's for a cause. It's not a lie if it's too sacred to reveal. It's not a lie if you don't have a positive duty to tell the truth. It's not a lie if someone else is supposed to reveal the truth. It's not a lie if the truth would incriminate you. It's not a lie if you tell part of the whole truth. It's not a lie if you are under commandment not to tell. And it's not a lie if you've covenanted to keep it secret. And that is absolutely brilliant what you just did. Uh, so there's uh, this is it. This is Oak's Philosophy Online. Thank you so much, RFM, for giving us some of your perspective and background. I wish we could have dove more into kind of the legalese and how attorneys may treat some of these things differently, but we're constrained by time and your flipping computer. Sorry, that. but what you did was perfect. I mean, you have gotten to the heart of this talk. You have dismantled it, dismembered it, exposed it for what he's really saying. And I think you've done it perfectly. Well, I couldn't have done it without you. So until next time, this has been Talk on Things and Stuff. We'll see you later. Thank you.